This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. The development trial is with the jury in Windsor. We'll keep an eye on this today. I think there's a lot of stuff that's sort of very much pending in the airspace right now, and one of which is that particular trial. Um, It's really important, too, about publication bans. I don't think this is too media nerdy not to share with you but the judge rejected um the idea of a publication ban on nathaniel veltman's manifesto and i i liked what the judge wrote the potential actions of a few should not deprive the many of access to evidence led at a public trial i've never quite understood why if you need to sequester the jury and keep them away from media reports that's fine do your business. We all would expect that, I think, in a high-profile case. You know, the highest-profile case, whatever, in our lifetime is O.J. Simpson. And, of course, you can't let the jury. There's been so many documentaries made and so many um, dramatizations made of the jury just in the hotel room night after night, day after day, ordering the same food, sitting in the same hotel room. They they give you cable in the hotel room or let you watch movies, but you can't exactly flip around and watch news coverage. I don't think that this particular jury is sequestered in uh, Windsor. And I've, if I'm wrong, I'll be able to find that out in about 10 minutes because someone will tell me that I don't have that right. But I don't think they're being sequestered right now. And the justice, she made that ruling before the jury started because I, I think we're the public and there shouldn't be a publication ban for a trial that's like this. Once evidence is complete, we're able to learn a bit more. And as I I pointed you earlier to this uh, website on CBC's news uh, website at uh, at cbcnews.ca, the 10 things the jury didn't get to hear and all you can about the case that we now know that's able to be released now that the case has gone to the jury and there's no risk of it filtering through to them. But I would look at this at the 10 things and think, are we limiting are we limiting ourselves somewhat when it's a, it's a public circumstance it's a very high profile trial and there shouldn't be much we don't know about what happens at the trial we lived through this with Paul Bernardo's trial in uh, 1993 2 and it was very very strange that we weren't able to get information about the Bernardo trial i remember we crossed um, the border once going into michigan from uh, when i was still in london i'm still a western and we crossed the border and we bought the Detroit papers. We we're going anyway for something else. But you'd go and buy the Detroit papers because you could get information. This is before newspapers were online. And you'd get information about the Bernardo trial. And you're like, huh, well, I don't like that strategy. Oh, they're making a deal with Carla Homolka. Like it was all laid out in newspapers. And there were things that our media weren't allowed to report on. So I feel like the publication ban is rather a simplistic, silly thing that is that is decades in the rearview mirror. But defense lawyers still ask for it. And I almost understand why at this point it protects us knowing more about what their client, who's charged with horrific crimes, had on his mind. So this manifesto was written by Nathaniel Veltman, and we haven't had access to it. The jury didn't have access to it. But the judge is saying, no, no, that that can be public, publicly printed and spread as as things go forward we'll see if indeed this uh this trial settles today but the jury has it right now and they'll be getting a morning of deliberation uh, a couple hours from now i think this is really an interesting one about post-secondary institutions and a potential tuition freeze you might forget and i admit i did that four years ago 
the progressive conservative government of Doug Ford cut tuition by 10 percent in 2019 and they froze tuition increases and fees. That's been a good thing. Now, what's that done? Well, um, the freeze forced post-secondary institutions to increase their dependence on international student tuition. Boy, have they. It's a crisis. It's it's uh, again, I, I said this to somebody yesterday. This should be the biggest story going. But I understand why it's not with everything else that's transpiring. I mean, we can barely get health care into into newscasts and into segments even on this show. It's very hard. And, and health care is a disaster right now in the province. Maybe it's never been worse. But there's a lot of other stuff, important stuff, stuff that makes you, you know, hurt inside that you need to know about stuff that makes you, um, you know, Think inside about the things that you need to know to live your everyday life. But I'd forgotten, A, that the conservatives had cut tuition, and B, that they'd frozen it. But now there is a report that got released yesterday from an expert panel saying, end the tuition freeze, boost per student funding. And we've sat in Ontario, by the way, at $8,647 for, that's the per full-time student taking an undergrad year, 8600 um, the average in Canada is 12,215, but that's taking all faculties into account. That's that's your MBA now. I remember when they raised the MBA from a normal tuition fee to take your master's or, or to take your to go to law school, to go to medical school. And they decided to charge more for that than, to be honest, a film degree or anything in the humanities or social sciences. And that made sense because their concept was your earning level when you get out is going to be much, much more. But um I think there's a little bit of a there needs to be a bit of a give back and a quid pro quo here. What has to happen is universities and colleges must cap and promise to cap and know that they're going to be punished badly if they break their word on this cap for international students. We've got to dial it down because they're not just getting the tuition fees. The point is the point where the, they get all this revenue from this source, international students coming here. And you already know all the issues with it. International students don't have much of a shot of getting here. They either didn't plan ahead, and I don't know whether we should castigate them specifically for that. They didn't plan ahead for what Ontario is, how, how the cost of living is, what it's going to take to get a condominium or an apartment to share, um, or how difficult is it going to be to get part-time work? Do they need full-time work? Basically, were they just not prepped and did they just not do the math? The idea that you're going to have people coming from other countries, regardless of the countries, and everyone's going to have the right information and the right plan seems rather ludicrous to consider. But I don't want to give universities another dime unless they're willing to cap the international student rate. I'd love to know what you think of that at 416-870-6400 via text. I'd love to know if you're worried that there's a little bit of cake and eating it too here for universities. Hey, you know what? We haven't raised tuition in four years. The Ford government did cut it 10%. How about a little extra? Because the, the recommendation from this panel is raising tuition 5%. Let's say it's $9,000. You might think that's not very much. That's about $450 on $9,000. But for tens of thousands of students across Ontario. But if you're not cutting international students... If you're not capping it and cutting it, and right now there's no rule on the books that says you must limit the amount of international students, and that's been made crystal clear by how many certain community colleges have taken in 
at about twenty thousand, twenty five thousand tuition a pop, then I, I you know, I, I can't trust you to do the right. If I can't trust you to do the right thing, you're going to have to put it in paper. I hope people push back on this somewhat. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Always intrepid Kareem Assad is an investigative reporter, and she's joined, joined our show many times before. And she was at this protest and speaking with some of the protesters. Karima, thanks for getting up early. It must have been a late night for you. What time did you leave the, uh, the scene of the King Edward last night? You know what? I blame Daylight Savings for this. Uh, I left at around 7 p.m., but it looked like midnight. Oh, that's true. Actually, it could have it could have been five thirty p.m. What was the tone? I mean, it's a really it's a really simple question, so I won't put too many um, you know variations on it. But what was the tone of the protest to you? Um, so there were a couple of dozen, I would say, protesters who were there for um, raising awareness about the Palestinian cause. There were a couple of convoy uh, protesters as well who did not make. Uh, nearly as much of an impact. They're a little late. I feel like I think they they missed the they missed the protest twenty months ago. I feel like then they're just trying to get theirs in now, right? I would say the two circuits con- converged because everyone is looking for ways to reach politicians and um, sort of meet them where they're at, so to speak. Um, but I would the what was interesting about the Palestinian protest it was a demonstration staged as a die-in, so there were maybe half a dozen of them who were lying down on the sidewalk at the entrance of the hotel, and they were all holding photos of children who have died in the bombing. Um, So as you can imagine, and as you heard from the clip, Mm -hmm. um, it was a very emotional um, and, uh, you know, an appeal to emotion that I'm not sure to what degree it landed or whether Anita Anand was aware. Yeah. So they were everybody that was coming to the fundraiser, I'm sensing already inside. This wasn't where we've seen some harrowing video. We saw it even last night at the Democratic uh, uh, at the DNC where people are trying to get through gates and push down barriers. That wasn't the case last night. No, it was not. Um, To my observation, the protesters stayed on the sidewalk. Um, and you, do you want to dive into your um, exchange? I saw you have an exchange on video with uh, uh, one man. People can go to your uh, your Twitter page, Karima Rules, spelled C-A-R-Y-M-A Rules, to follow it. But um, you had a sort of a back and forth with one of the protesters, didn't you? I had a couple of back and forth <laughs> with a protester, with a passerby. Um, you know, the, the general question sometimes is, why are you here? Uh, what are you doing to document this? And it's precisely so I can have these conversations, right? Be Mm -hmm. able to discuss and dissect what's happening on the streets with the, the dissent, right? Dissent and civic engagement, um, where it intersects with expression and at times criminal law. But you also, um, did you have to explain, it looks like you were explaining to a police officer, police showed up and they didn't shut the protest down, and it didn't look like they arrested anybody. I'm not saying they should or shouldn't, because nothing got violent, nothing got threatening. Um, so they're within their rights. But what what was the police involvement there? I think police were coming to just check it out and make sure everything was peaceful. I'm not sure if they were specifically called to the scene mm-hmm. or if they happened to be passing by. Um, but you're exactly right. Um, it, it's all on a, a spectrum, a continuum uh, of expression. And in this case, uh, it was disruptive in, in the sense that there was noise being made and there was 
a physical spectacle. Um, but I don't think that anyone in the vicinity reasonably felt scared. We're seeing a, 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 a groundswell. I, I would make that case. I want to know if you feel the same way. You're always out there. You have um, tremendous uh, aspiration to be at the scene of things that matter to people. And I think you do things that that uh, a, a lot of people won't do. But we're seeing something this week. We saw the Giller Awards uh, with Rick Mercer on stage. We saw Trudeau in Vancouver. We saw this last night. I'm not questioning the passion of the protesters, but I am saying that when we see a trend, that becomes, we put a Y on the end, and that becomes trendy. Do you think this is beginning something where we're almost going to see these on a nightly basis beyond the, what we see on the weekend already? Yes, uh, I believe that uh, some of these these tactics are not new, um, but the frequency in which we are seeing it represents um, turning up the heat, so to speak. Uh, And the protesters that I have engaged with have expressed that they plan to do this until their message is heard and it resonates, because from their perspective, and, Mm. and rightly so, um, the issue has not been resolved, and the civilian mm. death toll continues to rise. Karima, thanks so much again for uh, sharing your uh, your anecdotes from last night's protest at the King Edward Hotel with us here in Toronto today. Always appreciate you making the time for our show. I appreciate you having me. Karima Saad joining us. You can go to karimarules.com and follow her Twitter account. There's some great video from last night. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Um, We saw this terrible story on the streets of uh, North York yesterday. It happened in a roundabout, in essence, at an apartment building. Um, And there's now a murder charge for an elderly driver. We obviously are going to ask ourselves right away, is this hate? Is this uh, culturally motivated? But it looks like this is a family issue. And one person's dead, three others are injured after being hit by a vehicle in Toronto. Police believe this may be an intentional act. Uh, I want to bring on a former police officer in Peel, and he's running for office as well in the next federal election for the uh, Conservative Party of Canada. He is Ron Chinzer. Ron, it's great to have you back on Toronto today. I always appreciate your expertise. Anytime, Greg, and I'm happy to be on. Um, th- this kind of story, when when someone arrives at something like this, when an officer arrives at something like this, what are the first things they're looking for? When when they kind of they got wind, it's a pretty ugly story, and it could have a lot of implications to it. No, you're right. Listen, the first thing police officers do when they get to a scene like that is we have to preserve uh, life. So you try to do first aid and CPR, but then outside of that, you want to make a huge crime scene. I mean, as big as possible to make sure that you don't lose any evidence. When there's a car hitting people, there's a lot of physical evidence there. And then you want to be able to triage it and say, look, once the people are out of there, hold the crime scene, find witnesses, find the person who did it. In this case, the person stayed, so you have the person there. Look for video footage and then decide, well, who do we need to call on the inside, whether it be traffic services, homicide, major crime or other investigators. One thing that seemed to have helped yesterday is the driver of the vehicle remained at the scene and was arrested. Um, so I, I right away, that, that solves some of the piece of the puzzle, at least in terms of arriving and investigating. There's not some kind of manhunt. There's not kind of search. Um, whatever the circumstances are, I'm sure we'll find out later today and in the days to come, at least the suspect stays at the scene there. No, you're 100% right. Listen, when I first heard of this, what I thought was that the suspect would have fled the scene. There would have been a manhunt. Mm-hmm. The fact that they stayed behind tells a lot. Number one, I, I just based off of my experience, I knew there was much more to the story. Initially, like you had mentioned, people think it's going to be a hate crime or something motivated like that. Listen, when the person stays there, 
my first gut instinct is this is most likely something domestic related. They may have hit mm. the person intentionally, but I think when they realized, oh, my God, this is worse than what I thought, and the emotion kind of subsided, a new emotion came in, that they decided to stay because they didn't know what else to do or they cared about the person surviving. But that's just speculation mm. on my end. Ron Chinzer, former appeal police officer, our guest on Toronto Today, 640 Toronto. Are we in Toronto more likely to have an instantaneous snap finger reaction to what it could be, Ron, because of uh, of the van attack um, several years ago? Are we more inclined to think that right away? It's something awful. It's something that's that's a terrorist uh, movement at that point in time. Hey, listen, as a community, 100%. Toronto is the hub of the world. If you want to see the world, you come to Toronto, you're going to experience it. So not only locally from the van attack, but you have to look at where people are coming from in terms of their countries of origin. And stuff like this unfortunately happens. So, yeah, listen, it's normal to jump to that conclusion. Toronto has a heightened sense to do because of their personal experience. So that's absolutely normal. But what's important is for people to know that when police come into there, you know, a great investigator will never, ever let that invade their head. They're going to look at the evidence at the scene and let the evidence tell the story. Yeah, that, that has to take tremendous focus. And, and we must have. We must have a lot of Toronto police officers, Ron, that were, were well, let's put it this way. We all were more youthful when that happened, the Alec Manassian attack happened. But they, they may have worked that day. They may have come into the office the very next day and saw how traumatized other officers were. So it, it, it's in the brain, but the focus has to be just tunnel vision. Focus on the case that's right in front of you. Yeah, you know, you're right. That is the case. But with policing, what it's very unique about it is, look, I think Toronto has some of the best investigators in Canada, for sure. I worked in multiple units, never worked in homicide or traffic services, which Mm -hmm. is going to run this investigation. But I will tell you, you know, that does happen. But primarily, this becomes a problem solving uh, methodology. You're more motivated in the moment of solving the crime and finding the person arrestable and doing a good job out of respect for the victims and the legal justice system. When you're a police officer, you're constantly going to court and getting judged for what you did. So their process over time is to be able to ensure that when they show up to court, they can say, look, we did this absolutely objectively. The decisions we made were not based on our subjective opinion. They were based off of the story that the evidence told us and the information we gathered. Last thing, you're seeing things still on the streets in major cities in Canada. We saw the prime minister uh, harassed having uh, you know, a, a meal, which he should be allowed to have, for, quite frankly, in Vancouver the other night. We saw a protest outside a fundraiser for Anita Anand, a, a liberal cabinet minister, yesterday. Um, are you seeing things that are just as problematic as they were over the last few weeks? Uh, you know, of course, it's and, and none of that should be okay. And I'll tell you why it's not okay. If you're not pleased with what's happening, you have to go out and vote. That's the way to do it. You always have to think about what if we're on the other half of that. And, you know, it's always thinking about the minority. I mean, a couple of years ago, everything was in the perspective of the minority being the smaller portion of the population that disagreed with everybody else. We can't justify behavior because of a majority thinks this is the way to do it, especially when it comes down to violence or intimidation. So I think it's important to have civility and remember what Canada is. Look, there is no other place for people to go after Canada. If we don't value the safety and security that Canada provides you, where do you go from here? So well said. Uh, Ron Chins are joining us on Toronto Today. He's running uh, to be the CPC candidate for the riding of Oakville, North Burlington. It's great to have you on, and I always appreciate our conversations. Ron, thanks so much. Thanks, Greg. Take care. Ron Chinzer joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let's zoom in right now on uh, on something that we were talking about earlier this week with regard to the beer store, and that's sort of wide-scale recycling. And we're happy to have uh, the uh, proprietor of Soul Recycling in studio with us this morning, and he is uh, Samar Betty. It's great to have you in. 
Thank you, Greg. Good you, morning. You've had a recycling plant for a decade now. What mm-hmm. got you into recycling back in 2014? Well, first and foremost, like I, I'm a, a green initiative. Like I'm a tree hugger per se, right? So my father owned a printing company and he had a lot of waste of paper and it was all going to the landfill. Me being a young guy saying, hey, there has to be something better than this. And then from his company, I started a recycling company called Soul Recycling because I found a source that would take a scrap paper and put it into insulation. And that company was out of the U.S. and we formed a partnership to supply scrap paper to them. And there we go, Soul Recycling. And we've gotten so much more paperless. Think about when you started. I mean, we're a lot more paperless than 2014. But even in 2014, you know, I'd have, you'd be amazed doing morning radio. You'd have this giant stack of notes because you couldn't have 20 windows open and you didn't have access to as much stuff. And we were just throwing a lot more work-related paper into a blue bin. And sometimes yep. it would make it to recycle and sometimes it goes in a landfill. And that's it, really, right? So, yeah, with that said, you're absolutely right. Um, we did pivot a, a pivot a little bit and got into more plastics, as in plastics are growing. And we got into metals. Metals are growing to different items to recycle. Um, you found a way to make it also profitable for corporations. Lay that out for our audience. How, instead of paying money, they can actually get money back for themselves by recycling, which is which is unique. Yes. So we have major corporations right now that used to spend millions in landfill, and now they're making millions in revenue. So it's a big deal. So how we do it is basically if you, right now everybody driving is probably driving with a coffee, coffee cup. Let's take a look at it. So that coffee cup, the cup is fiber. What's the basis of fiber? Lumber. Lumber is a commodity. The lid is plastic. What's the basis of the lid, which is petroleum? Petroleum is a commodity. Both things are worth money. So we made processes in-house that we could then make this a raw product again and then sell it Mm. as a commodity. We've got uh, Samar uh, Betty joining us uh, from Solar Recycling. How much did the pandemic slow you down? You just mentioned coffee cups. Think about all the times I'd, I'd have my, um, you know, my Yeti mug. I want to fill it up. And they're like, no, 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 can't touch the mugs. That felt like it went on forever. How much did the pandemic slow recycling down as a business? Oh, it, it hit us like every business, right? We were in the same boat as everybody else. Um, what really happened was people didn't want to sort anymore. Right, everything was disposable. You got your masks, you got oh, God. everything. It was, it was terrible. It was terrible. So it really put a big speed bump in our initiative. But you know what? We're back. We're spreading the awareness with you, Greg, right now. So let's 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 not, not even talk about the pandemic. No, anymore. no, no. But it, yeah, a speed bump. It was a definite speed bump, <laughs> yeah, or, definite or speed a brick bump. wall. Yeah. Uh, we all hit. Soul Recycling, yeah. spelled S O L, is the website. You're also doing something with medical waste, and right. and you, just when you mention that, I think about needles and masks and and latex gloves. Mm-hmm. And there's so much recycling that a hospital can do that many don't, but some are starting to. Yeah, yeah. So the reason we had to hit medical waste because it was the one of the most complicated types of waste to recycle. As you know, it's hazardous. There's needles. There's plastic. Everything's mixed. So we came up, we, we went into R&D lab, we, went on, we traveled the world to see how are other countries handling medical waste. In Italy, we found a technology that they're, they're not burning the medical waste, which we are currently doing in Ontario. We're just incinerating everything. So How can we stop uh, that? This is it. So, is that, is that, but is that government legislation or is that just companies stepping up and doing it better? That's companies stepping up and yeah. doing it better, right? So, and then we brought that solution to Canada. So... What we do, we have a thermal-based, friction-based, non-pollutant technology that takes medical waste and turns it into fluff. And this fluff, like, I know it's hard to imagine. 
because you're talking needles, yeah. you're talking yeah. glass, but it's it becomes non-hazardous, and that fluff is then used as insulation stuffing. It's used for flooring and additive for aggregates. There's many end uses for it. So a true zero waste landfill. And people go, okay, now it's going yeah. to aggregates, but eventually the aggregates will become into, you know, will have to be demolished, dem sorry, will have to go away into landfill. But yeah. I want anybody um, listening who owns a company to go to Soul Recycling, spelled S-O-L Recycling. And we're out of time for now. This flies by, but but let's stay in touch. And when we've yes. got recycling issues at a macro level, I hope we can call you and you'll uh, advise us as to how to do it better. It's really important. Let's do it long form, Greg. I you got, got it. Well, long, okay, this was sort of mid form <laughs> instead of short form. But <laughs> great to have him in. Samar Betty joining us uh, from Soul Recycling.